Hi, I'm Melanie Rymack, and this is Walk Left, the podcast. And I'm Marty Chidori. Thanks for joining us. So you've got a show in this year's Fringe Festival, Licking Knives. Tell me a bit about where the idea for this show came from. Well, it's based on a true story. I've taken some creative liberties with it, but it is based on the story of what happened to my great aunt and how she got from the farm that she lived on in rural Ukraine all the way to Paris over the course of World War II. It's one of those stories that it kind of, I don't know, Every I used to tell it in conversation occasionally because everyone would wonder why I had family in Paris because I'm Ukrainian and Irish and that didn't make any sense. So I would tell her story and everyone it, everyone always responded to it in sort of that's unbelievable and you should write a play about it, <laughs> generally in that order. Uh, so it was always something that was on the back burner for me. And then in the fall, I was feeling a little bit, oh, how do I put this? I don't know, that thing that happens to actors when you want to be working and you're not and you just get this overwhelming desire to make something, literally anything. So I submitted to a whole bunch of fringe festivals and I got into the Toronto Fringe. So I thought the Fringe is sort of the ultimate venue to try something new. And I was originally considering doing a published play, but I decided that now was now was the moment to write that play that I always meant to write and didn't. Tell me a bit about the process of how you started taking that story, which I'm sure has has been told in your family a number of times, and then you've gone on to tell it. What was the process like of, of taking that and and ch- changing its form to uh, a play? I started with what I wanted the question of the play to be, what I wanted, what I wanted to say with it, what what I wanted to examine. I don't find messages particularly useful. Answers aren't interesting to me. Questions are interesting to me. So the question that I sort of had for myself was what would have become of my aunt if she hadn't moved to France? Uh, What would have happened to her if she had stayed? And it just seemed so strange to me because that's not who she is as a person. So the play sort of became an exploration of who we are as people and how we get there like are we created by the circumstances around us or do we decide who we're going to be and this was partly influenced by the fact that I'm 25 and everyone and you know a lot of my friends are were were out of that initial high of theater school and and university and we're not quite into feeling established or feeling like we know what we're doing or having made certain life choices Uh, that go along with those things. So we're all sort of in this ephemeral ephemeral space of who am I and what am I doing and what do I want with, what do I want to do with my life? So those questions seemed very related to the questions of this play. So in terms of constructing the storyline, I had to pick, sort of pick a chunk of her life to focus on. And I decided that the years of the war would be that focus. But then when I started writing it, I realized that the reason... The reason that she left is not because of the war. It is and it isn't. It started before that. And then looking at the history of Ukraine and and realizing that she would have been a young child at the time of the Holodomor, um, which was an induced famine in Ukraine from 1932 to 1933, and thinking about how that would have formed 
her view as a child of what life as an adult could be like. It ended up being officially looking at sort of 1939 to 1950, but unofficially starting in about 1932. And so the narrative is constructed to sort of look at the pivotal moments. It follows the basic plot points of what happened to my aunt, but then I took some creative license in terms of melding in the questions that I face in my daily life of that maybe she didn't think about. I don't know. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. But I don't think she, I don't think she ever sat down and was like, am I the kind of person who wants to stay on a farm in rural Ukraine? But talking to her for five minutes, it's clear that that's not the person that she is or was ever going to be. So those, I'm not sure if she ever asked herself those questions. I suspect she didn't. But now I get to about myself. And I feel like I don't know, it's sort of the character's a bit of a hybrid between her and my grandmother and some of the research, incorporating some of the research that I've done into this time period, uh, but also some of my own questions and some of my own sensibilities, which hopefully will all blend together beautifully. Taking a story like this, you're obviously working in, you know, not everyone is familiar with the, you know, Ukrainian history of the 1930s. They're not. They're, what? <laughs> I'm shocked. It's shocking. How did you incorporate, I guess, sort of the necessary exposition in that without, you know, I don't know, maybe you have a slide at the beginning. 1930s, <laughs> Ukraine. Things are hard. I considered it. I, I did. Um, that's actually been one of the big challenges in writing. Uh, I feel like, and it's part of the reason that I am writing the plays, I feel like most of our knowledge of of that time and of that place comes from the Western perspective. So we are very, well, that's arguable, but we're, we get the story from the winning side. We get the winning side of the war. Yay, allies, D-Day, Americans are great, Canadians are awesome, huzzah, England, Churchill, we get it. But there are very few stories from the Eastern perspective. There are very few stories from the losing side of the war. And there are even fewer stories, in my opinion, of what it was like for women. Like, if you're looking for a soldier's experience, it's much easier to find that information. If you're looking for what it was like, you know, for a woman in Belarus, like, I don't know. You have to know someone, basically, you have to find them. And unfortunately, we're at the time now where a lot of those people are passing away. And so if these stories don't get captured, they'll get lost. So part of weaving in the exposition was, well, it was really challenging, so I'll be honest with you. Part of it is, I mean, I didn't want to, like, rip off Hannah Moskovich in, in the Russian play and be like, let me give you, like, a history of Russia, like, throw out some, some buzzwords that you'll get. Um, so part of it was incorporating things like the Holodomor into the story and how that affected the character's view of the world and view of her country. And I tried to weave in as much of those stories into sort of family anecdotes. So there are a lot of stories about, you know, conversations she had with her father. Those are complete fabrications. I have, there's no historical precedent in my family for those conversations. But that's how I can tell you about the Holodomor without pulling out a slide and saying, this is what happened and having a picture of like a skull and crossbones over a field of wheat. Um, that's how I can avoid that is I can have a conversation between, between her and her father about how they're going to deal with this and what that feels like to have soldiers come to the farm that you live on to your home 
to take away the food that you have produced. And one a part of it was also using imagery. So, for example, like the the flag of Ukraine is is blue on the top for sky and yellow on the bottom for wheat. Not everybody knows that either. So I'm like, okay, how do I how do I trigger that in your brain? Because most people know the image, they just don't can't conjure it themselves. How do I connect that to the story that I'm telling? Well, if we're talking about wheat, great, the wheat's on the flag. Let's talk about that connection. And you know, if you if your country is so well known for wheat that you put it on your flag, how does it feel to not have any? And and sort of tying things together both very intimately on a family scale, but also on a larger socioeconomic political scale. The thing that's been catching me off guard is, is in researching these historical realities because the focus of education in, in Ontario and in Canada is certainly not on these things when you learn about World War II. You're not like, hmm, let's learn about like Ostarbeiter, which is the German word for Eastern European workers. Osh meaning east and then arbiter meaning worker. Like that's a word that I'd never heard before. And I'm like, okay, well, what's that? And then you look into it and you start reading research about, okay, so they're workers from eastern Ukraine. Well, what does that mean? Okay, well, that means that they're <laughs> categorized as subhuman. And there was a ratio scale of uh, women were worth about 90% of a German woman, like a German female worker, and uh, men were worth... I read various figures, but it generally hovered around 50-ish percent. And just reading about how people, like my people, were reduced to these percentages of like a better human being over there was, it affected me much more deeply than I thought that it would. And it made a lot of things about people that I knew growing up and now make a lot of sense in a different way, just having more context, I suppose. And my, my aunt in real life is this phenomenal woman. Um, she's ex incredibly passionate and uh, has a temper. So if I'm, if I'm a two, she's a 10. And most people would not think that I am a two. So you can just extrapolate from there of what she is like as a human being. She's wonderful, but she's very, very intense. And in researching the experiences of her life, I'm like, wow, you're pretty mellow uh, for what you went through, I think. If I had gone through those things, I don't know. I don't know if I would be as mellow as you are. And I've seen her throw lettuce at a waiter before. So that's saying something, I think. <laughs> Throwing lettuce at a waiter. Yeah, in the Louvre, she threw lettuce. It had brown spots on it. I see. <laughs> So what is uh, what is the interaction been like with her through this process then? It's like what what was her reaction to you saying you were going to write a play about you know or based on some of her experiences? To be honest with you, she is quite elderly now, and she, as is quite normal with people of her age, she doesn't always know what's going on. So it was a really hard decision actually, and and part of me. In all honesty, I haven't told her, uh, which is, I don't know, is that morally questionable? I don't know. But the reason that I haven't is because I, I thought long and hard about it and I realized the story isn't really about her. So it wasn't going to be worth distressing her with it because she might get upset 
she might not get upset. She might think it's really cool. Uh, she thinks it's pretty awesome that I'm an actress. So she might think that it's amazing. But I think by the time I explained it to her and then called her the next week to talk to her about it again, she wouldn't remember the previous conversation and I'd have to have the same one over again. So I decided not to directly include her in the process. And I don't know, I question that decision basically every day. But I just don't feel like it would be constructive. And in, in so many ways, I mean, I've taken basically the major plot points of her life in in uh, where she's from in Ukraine, leaving Ukraine to work in Germany, how she gets put in the concentration camp. I'm using the correct concentration camp as the inspiration, but I'm not going to name the concentration camp in the play. And then I don't. Well, there's like family rumors about why she ended up in France. I'm probably just going to fabricate a new... Uh, I, I mean, there's so many v different versions of the story that it's all fabrication at this point. And, and the point that the play takes place at in terms of time and place, which is in Paris in a cafe, is, is complete made-upness. It's, it's the day that she's about to see her sister for the first time since leaving Ukraine a decade earlier. And that's this is complete conjecture. So it's mostly made up. I don't know. Are you going to call her and tell her what I did? <laughs> <laughs> She's going to throw something worse than lettuce at me. Or she might think it's the best. You know, the, last, the last time my mother went to Paris and saw her, she sent, um, she sent this really beautiful uh, black leather clutch with a pair of like handmade black suede gloves from the 60s i would say they're vintage but they're, for her they're just gloves in a purse that she's had for a really long time and some scented handkerchiefs because i was an actress and i obviously needed these things to be an actress wow yeah i don't think a lot of people are going to know quite what they're walking into with this show because it's a one-person show but it's not a one-person show in which i play 20 characters i'm not going to manifest everyone that she talks to. I was very inspired by uh, storytelling shows. I sort of recently started to experience those and I think they're really cool. I, I find them a little disappointing when I go to the theater. I really like storytelling, you know, that sort of national public radio, like The Moth and, and This American Life. I think it's really interesting and cool to have people tell their own stories in their own words. And But I do love theater and I love the magic of it. So I wanted to sort of combine that almost casualness of, of storytelling and that, but combine it with the sort of heightened reality of theater. And so I don't want to tell you, you know, and now we're in a cafe in Paris. I want that to be obvious from, uh, I'm working with a sound designer, Tessa Springate, and she is a genius and takes all of the gibberish that comes out of my mouth about what I think is happening emotionally and like geographically in the play and then turns it into brilliant soundscape work. But I really wanted it to be clear the time and space shifts happen rather than through set or through, you know, extravagant lighting changes or, or I don't know how, how people change geography, like a little sign on the back wall that's like, no, we're in Berlin. Like, I, that's not what I wanted to happen. I wanted it to be much more subtle than that. I wanted you to know the period of the play because of what I'm wearing. But I'm not trying to be exactly historically accurate because this play is about 
about young women now and the choices that we face now as well as then or the lack of choices that we face the set is basically a chair and it's a rattan parisian style chair like you would see in a parisian bistro so you're going to look at it and you'll you'll get that image of a parisian bistro but i'm never going to tell you that's where we are Uh, i think coming into the play it's not going to be as sad as you think and I, I really do feel that this is quite a funny play. Yes, I've managed to make a genocide funny, Marty. Um, <laughs> I think it's really, I think it's really important that um, to stay true to that thing that human beings do when terrible things happen. We we have to process them somehow. And I, and most people I know and am related to, either don't talk about it or you talk about it in a different way. I mean, Eastern Europeans have this like dark, morbid sense of humor where they're hundred percent honest about mm. death and suffering but at the same time you you don't carry that weight it's funny it has to be because otherwise it's just depressing and we'd all just drown ourselves in beet juice or something <laughs> right like so yeah i mean i very much think of this play as a dark comedy and and that i want people to leave wondering how they became the person that they became and to question whether that was their own choice or if it was a choice that was made for them. And I mean, it's probably some combination of the two, but I think looking looking at our lives that way, it's so much, it's really important for us to see those forces, to see either our own will and our own drive and our own agency, which is very empowering and wonderful. And something that I'm so grateful to be a young woman living in 2014 in Canada that I get to make the choices I make in my life. As we sit here in like my little bachelor apartment that I'm like, I get that. I get to, I'm so lucky that I get to live this life and, 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 you know, have this, my little corner of the sky that is exactly how I want it to be. And, um, but at the same time, there are forces that have shaped my life for better or for worse. And, I do question them and wonder, you know, if this circumstance had been different, how how different would I be? Maybe that's because I'm an actor and I, this is what I spend my life doing. But I, I hope that people look at themselves that way. It's a it's vulnerable subject matter, and it's it's not it's it's hopefully going to be funny, but it's certainly not going to be easy for anyone in the room. I think. Uh, because there will be some truths that are said that we don't like to hear uh, about ourselves, about, I mean, there are the truths about that time and that place and and the things that happen to people which are horrific and sort of beyond my understanding in many ways. But I think that's what theater should be. John Neville said something about theater being this this great coming together of men. I amend that to humans and people. But I think that that's, that's the best thing about theater and my favorite part of being an actor is when the, when you're doing a show that you give a shit about and you've got a group of people in the room who have come to see it and you're all going through it together. That's like that's when the magic of theater happens. That's when the really exciting thing happens where where I as a performer get to be changed because I got to share this with you, but you also get to be changed because you I call it seeing the ugly. 
And we as actors don't like to show our actual real ugly sides. I mean, we, we literally take classes and how not to look physically ugly, but we also train to not look emotionally ugly in many ways. You know, we'll, we'll go to sadness and we'll go to anger and we'll go to happiness very quickly and easily. But it's a lot harder to show someone your vanity. And it's a lot harder to show someone your fear or your cowardice. And that's, I mean, the idea of being a coward is certainly one that comes up in this play of, on so many levels, I'm being a coward about who you are as a person. It's like, do you, if you know that this isn't the life that you're supposed to lead, do you keep leading it because it's the easy choice or do you, do you face that horrible fear and, and move forward? But then there's, you know, the literal cowardice of you know, put on this German uniform or we'll shoot you in the head. And that's something that's a choice that's so easy to look at now and say, well, obviously you should have just, you should have chosen death. But what if you don't? What if you choose to put on the uniform? And, and how does that affect you for so many years later? And there's, there's a moment in the play that I've written in because I always wondered about what it must have been like after the war was over and a few years had passed to look around the streets of, say, Paris. And all of those people would have lived through that time. And in a place like France where there were all kinds of, you know, people supporting the Nazis and helping them and people fighting against them and to walk around the street and, and what, what people's eyes would have been like to know, like the people didn't change, right? The war is over, but everybody's still there. Well, not everybody, but it's not like everybody left for America after the war was over. You stayed and like your baker is still your baker and, and the butcher is still the butcher and the guy who lives, you know, two doors down from you is still that person. And I, I wonder what that felt like to look around and to see to see those people and, and to see how they've been changed by their experiences and to meet people who lived through things worse than you. It's a, it's a thing that I think is really hard to grasp now because the only people who really go through something similar are, are veterans who, you know, serve in Afghanistan and and all around the world. Those are the only people who see anything quite similar to that. I mean, of course, there are domestic violence and all kinds of issues here but on that scale i think and we're really lucky in north america we don't have i mean we don't have the history but we don't have the weight of that history either we don't have to carry around you know generations of emotional baggage and well it's a very interesting idea to me of, of the we're sort of so young we're so young here in North America, um, which is a great thing in many ways, and it's a crappy thing in other ways. But uh, I always think that must have been so weird to walk around the streets of Paris, like it, like like a year after the war ended, how it would feel the same and how it would feel different. And ooh, I think it's so interesting. <laughs> Licking Knives, part of the 2014 Toronto Fringe Festival. Thanks a lot, Melanie. Thanks, Melanie. Thanks for listening to the podcast. 
If you have an upcoming Toronto-based performing arts project or production, I want to talk to you about it. Visit walkleft.ca.